Welcome to the New Books Network. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a project funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation and hosted by Northeastern University. Sacred Rights is a project that supports public scholarship on religion and provides resources and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website at sacred-rights.org or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. On this episode, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Darnie Smartin. Dr. Darnie Smartin is a religious studies professor, author, and life transformation coach. Dr. Martin is the author of Beyond Christianity, African Americans in a New Thought Church from New York University Press. She is also the author of the personal development book, 40-something, 10 Radical Lessons for Women on How to Live and Love Without Losing Themselves. No stranger to public scholarship, she has also appeared on NPR and consulted for the Oprah Winfrey Network. On this episode, we discuss the books Beyond Christianity and 40-something, as well as the article Beyonce Gives Us a Black, Queer, and Spiritual Renaissance, published by The Revealer in December 2023. Dr. Martin is a 2023 Henry Luce Foundation cohort member for Sacred Rights, and you can find her online at drdarnice.com. Please enjoy our conversation. Dr. Darnice Martin, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm so delighted that you're here. I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the audience out there so they know a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, I'm Darnice Martin. I am a faculty member, a longtime faculty member at Loyola Marymount University in L.A., Um, I've done the radical decision of going part-time, which I know most people are trying to climb into that tenure track full-time, but I did full-time non-tenure track for years and years, and I just got to that part where I thought, ah, Alt-Act sounds pretty good, actually. So I am part-time faculty. Um, I have my own coaching business where I help other people, and that's what I do. And I'm also a writer. I'm curious a little bit about your your pathway into your academic areas of interest. Can you tell me a little bit about how you what some stepping stones were for you along the way to kind of help you find your way as a as a scholar and into your areas of expertise? Wow, Greg, how much time do you have? Should I go back to when <laughs> I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio? And I was that nerdy kid, shy, who wanted to read books all the time. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, we mm-hmm. go there, right? And I really did read as a child. I read, you know, religion and like world religion and mythology and stuff like that. But fast forward, <laughs> you know, I just decided at a certain point, or maybe maybe it was decided for me, because I had my first career was in fashion, and believe it or not, marketing. I moved to New York and I did all that, and I literally feel like I had some sort of calling, so to speak, or some other thing that was really bubbling up inside of me that was more authentic to who I was. So yeah, although I had been that kid who was 
reading and making up stories and doing all that stuff, which seemed, uh, of course, especially weird <laughs> um, when you're a kid. But by the time I got to be like, I don't know, out of college, working in my first career in fashion in New York City, the you know career that a lot of people would really love to have. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, this is not it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> not it. And in my early to mid twenties, I had no idea what it like. Okay, if this is not it, what is it? And I just had this feeling within me: you should be doing the thing that you always like to do. You should be a teacher, and you should be you should go back to school. Now, can I tell you how much I avoided that? Of course, absolutely. Yeah, because it, it, it's a big investment and it's kind of scary to make those radical shifts whenever you're making a living doing one thing and then it's like you have this urge to drive you in another direction. It's terrifying. Yeah, so I understand when people say they have a calling or a vocational pull on their lives, but it was, you know, it wasn't going to go away. I was really like mid-20s having my quarter-life crisis, um, which at the time when I was having it, they didn't call it that. You just felt like you were... You know, something's wrong with you. And so I went on this sort of self-reflective journey and I was in New York. So I I began to hear about or learn about Union Theological Seminary. Mm. I didn't really know about it. I didn't know about James Cone. James Cone is this illustrious scholar at Union. I didn't know anything about that. All I knew was that I had this feeling within myself that I needed to explore it. It also kind of meshed with this time when I felt like I needed to leave New York. I'd been in New York for like four years and I felt like I wanted to go back uh, to my home state, which is Ohio. So things kind of lined up and I um, left there. I got like what I call a bridge job, something that will get you from point A to point B. And Mm -hmm. also I decided to go to seminary and I studied theology and my family was like, we don't understand anything that you just said right now. Do you mean that you quit your good job and um, you're going to do what? You're going to be a minister of a church? No, I'm not going to be a minister of a church. Well, then what are you doing? <laughs> and it was like, well, whatever you decide, you're paying for it yourself. So knock yourself out. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I I got a, you know, started my master's program in theology at the seminary um, outside of Columbus called Methodist Theological School in Ohio, Methesco to those who know. And um, after that, or during the course of that master's program, I had professors who said, well, you should go and do a PhD. And I was like, for what? What does that Mm. even mean to my life? Well, you know, you really, you know, you have the aptitude, you should really do it. You have the interest, you should do it. You know, consider a career as an academic. And I was like, all right. Mm. (laughs) So... I got accepted to two schools, Notre Dame and the Graduate Theological Union in uh, California in Berkeley. So I got my nerve together and moved across the country and went to the GTU in Berkeley and did the thing. What what was it that drew you towards? I, I'm thinking about where you wind up like with your book, right? You have a book out called Beyond Christianity, African-Americans in a New Thought Church. Was that project and that book derived from the research that you were doing in that PhD program? Yeah. So that story is that I, you know, anybody who's been in a doctoral program knows that you feel crazy half the time. Yeah. And I'd gotten through the, 
you know, up through comps, comprehensive exams, right? I've done a coursework, the languages and all of that. And initially my thought, well, initially my study was on the historical Jesus kind of stuff. Mm. And because um, I was really interested in mythology, right? So I was like, how does this man go from being, you know, man to God? What is the metamorphosis? What is the mythological, Christological magic trick that happens that turns this man into God? Well, about the midpoint there, comprehensive exams, I did all that. And I said to my advisor, what well, was my advisor at the time, one of my faculty, one of my professors, I said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I, I don't even have anything. I don't, you know, historical Jesus research is sort of a dead end. Like, mm. and I'm done. I'm tired of talking to, about it. And I don't have anything to say. And he said, well, you're not done. You're not leaving. Mm. <laughs> and I said, well, I have no ideas. I have no ideas. Don't even ask me. I've read everything and now I have nothing. And now I have nothing. All of yeah. this led me to nothing. And he goes, what about that church you go to in Oakland? I lived in Oakland. I lived in Oakland. I worked at the University of San Francisco, staff position over there. And um, so I was all over the Bay. And he said, what about that church you attend in Oakland? I, what about it? <laughs> East Bay Church of Religious Science. That is a, isn't that a black church of people doing new thought? Yeah. What about it? <laughs> and he goes, I don't think you're really thinking about what it is and how unusual it is. Mm. And he goes, although I think you don't understand how unusual it is. Yes, it is unusual to have a, a church of African-Americans in new thought, especially religious science, which is one of the major denominations in uh, new thought. And so I just sat there kind of stunned. We're in a coffee shop in, in Berkeley, and I just sat there across the table from him kind of stunned because I really hadn't thought about I, it just never dawned on me. So he slid me like a piece of paper across the table because I kept saying I kept insisting that I have no ideas. Right. I was insisting. Yeah. And I'm going to quit. And so he slid me this piece of paper, which had written on it, East Bay Church of Religious Science. P push it towards me. And he said, now you go and think about this. And next time we meet, I expect you to have some thoughts. Mm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went and thought about it. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes. Because new thought is this, you know, American religion, not many people know anything about in general. And then the idea of African-Americans in this particular kind of religion and this particular church in Oakland meant that it was a case study waiting to be happen, waiting mm. to happen. And here I was going to do this participant observation ethnography work. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And so that's what led to doing the dissertation, its case study, as I said, and to ultimately having the, the book. What do people need to know about new thought and religious science that, um, you know, what are a couple basic things that you think that everybody should know who's listening to this podcast? Um, it is a metaphysical religion, right? It is it, the worldview is that this is a vibrational universe. What people need to know is that they've probably heard of it before some pieces of it. Um, it is commonly known as that positive thinking kind of religion has its mm. 19th century uh, New England. And so people get little bits of bits and pieces of it in popular culture uh, via the idea that of the law of attraction or that we have the power to create our own reality. And that's essentially what New Thought teaches, which is we are vibrational beings. This is a vibrational universe and that we are co-creating by the way that we think and the way that we speak. And so 
there are, as I said, three main denominations, religious science, also known as science of mind, um, Unity School of Christianity, and divine science. And there are multiple, multiple independent kind of groups that meet and, and, and religions. Predominantly, predominantly uh, Reverend Michael Beckwith, a lot of people know him from his association with Oprah on Super Soul Sunday. He has a church in L.A. Uh, called Agape. And he comes out of the religious science, science of mind tradition, but his church now is more of an independent, non-denominational New Thought church. So people are somewhat familiar with various aspects of New Thought without realizing that it is, in fact, part of a religious system. And we use the term religious or religion kind of loosely uh, because it doesn't really have, you know, firm doctrine. There's no you know, in religious science, we say we're open at the top, meaning the symbol is a V, open at the top, and that we're continually downloading from spirit and continually evolving, continually growing. So the canon is not closed. Mm. So we're continually evolving. There's no developed eschatology, meaning we're not like, oh, well, what happens when you die? Well, you go to heaven if you've been good and you go to hell if you've been... No, it's we're co-creating our reality. Mm. Why the title Beyond Christianity? Why include Christianity in the title? Because um, in doing work on the topic of African-American religions, a lot of the time, the, the, the research is the Black church. Mm. So one of the things my professor and advisor told me in that moment, right, when he was trying to convey to me, no, you're not going to quit, and there's this work to be done, he said, now go and do some research and see what else you come up with on this subject, Meaning there really wasn't in terms of what African-Americans were doing, very little and not academic. There are a lot of ministers and people contributed um, for the last hundred years. But in terms of academically, there really wasn't anything. I was sort of fixated, I guess, on the idea that I want the conversation to be beyond Christianity. I Mm. want it to be beyond the black church. That's just a continual conversation that we're having all the time, but it's a circular conversation. And there are so many African-Americans who are doing things that are not Christian, like Black people throughout the diaspora, for one thing. But if we're going to talk about, you know, African-Americans, then we can do more than talk about the Black church, which is already, you know, a monolithic term that that erases a lot of the nuances of Black Christianity, even. Mm-hmm. So... I wanted to have a conversation beyond Christianity. Um, and I was even with various colleagues, you know, who were who were doing um, studies in black liberation theology, black church. Right. It was like I was always the odd person at my conferences and whatever, who's like, I'm not talking about liberation theology in the black church. And then they look at me like, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about diversities of African-American religions. And they're like, what are you talking about? Islam? And I'm like, no. Well, yes, I'm talking about Black people who do multiple things. And I, frankly, I got bored with the conversation, not to say that people aren't doing good work. A lot of my colleagues are doing excellent work. But it's like, when do we get to talk? Of, when do we get to talk beyond Christianity? <laughs> I love that. Where did you go from the book? Like, wh- how did your scholarly interests continue to evolve from that topic beyond throughout your the rest of your career? Because I know the book has been out for quite a, quite a while at this point, yeah. but I'm wondering where you went next. 
Interesting. Uh, so the book came out to a little bit of fanfare and then sort of, you know, fell as academic books do. <laughs> mm -hmm. One is I became pretty much known as the person to read or to talk to in terms of African-Americans and who thought anything because there still wasn't right. It wasn't like, oh, there's a groundswell of people who now want to do work here. Um, but sort of but it's marginal. I mean, new thought is sort of marginal, sort of a marginal conversation. And, and so it, it just kind of opened up time and space for me to think about what else I wanted to focus on. And what what found me <laughs> was my own spiritual uh, expansion, awareness into African spiritualities. Yeah, it found me really. And I mean, because I teach, then I was teaching about, you know, Vodun and Ifa and, you know, African diaspora religions. And so one day, I mean, it, it, it sounds weird to say, but one day I was in class literally teaching about the Orisha of Ifa. And I just had this moment of like, why have I not been talking about this? Mm. <laughs> you know, I was talking about it in the middle of class and I was just like, huh? I mean, I literally paused the, the class. Mm. Like I was speechless for a few minutes and, and um, the students were like waiting, you know, and I was like, Oh uh, yeah. I just thought about something at the moment. So uh, never mind. And so I kept going. Right. But I say it found me because I was literally teaching about the Orisha and it was as if I had a sort of moment and um, it led me to, to want to explore more Hoodoo, which is an African-American folk kind of healing spirituality. And so that's kind of where I am now. And part of the reason why I moved to Savannah, Georgia also, because of mm. the rich, rich cultural history here of the Gullah Geechee people. What are you, uh, what are you working on right now in Savannah with regards to hoodoo? I guess I'm doing that research thing of um, <laughs> like on the ground. I don't, you know, I call it my Savannah adventures my savannah mm -hmm. stories and my savannah adventures so here in the low country it's south carolina georgia and north florida there are these regions a region called the well the low country but the um sea islands and interestingly not a lot of americans even know that these sea islands exist off the coast here it is a, it is a place where african people um, were enslaved and you know, off the mainland, like literally off the mainland of the U.S. on these islands. And at the end of slavery, um, African-Americans were, were remained there. And so there's this rich African history that's still here. I'm trying to say, Greg, I'm, I'm getting a little bit like, it's so it's so rich here. And so that's amazing. It's so rich because it was almost isolated. And so you have a group of African-American people who retain a lot of African Africanisms because they were really not, you know, assimilated, so to speak. Now, over time, I mean, there's been certainly more uh, interaction, of course, and gentrification is happening, happening rampantly. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm trying to, you know, be a witness to the culture that's here in, in terms of the African culture, the religion, spirituality. I, I, I'm just trying to witness it right now, right? And, and to capture a certain moment 
one thing that is really sad to me is like Hilton Head, like a lot of people know the area of Myrtle Beach, Hilton Head. Well, <laughs> those areas are completely gentrified now. Mm-hmm. And they're considered to be, you know, very desirable uh, Hilton Head. It's it's a beautiful swamp, I call it. It's, it's really a swamp. I don't know if you've ever been here, but. I've been to Myrtle Beach. I haven't been to Hilton Head. Well, if you come on down to Hilton Head, you might wonder why you even got here. Like, it's a swamp. <laughs> I'll ask for I'll ask for uh, for recommendations too if I make my way down there. Okay, beautiful though. It's absolutely beautiful, right? Which is why people want to be here, and it's become a vacation place for people with money to come in here and 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 buy property or you know have timeshares. And so the people who've been there for centuries, African-American people have lost out as in many places around the country where gentrification is, is doing what it does. Right. And so I'm, I'm almost, well, I'm not, I'm sad about it because I'm literally witnessing the erosion and erasure of, of African-American culture, African culture here. So right now you asked me what I'm doing. So I am witnessing this and I am, I don't know what the book project will, will be. Am I going to just write on who do? I'm not really sure what it will be. Yeah. But I really feel like I've been called back here to Georgia for a reason. And I say back here because my family came from Georgia before they all migrated to Ohio. And now I'm back here really feeling drawn to be here in Georgia I'm not sure how my grandparents or great grandparents would feel about it because they did all the trouble of getting us to the north for a bit. <laughs> and then here I am back here <laughs> looking it's at plantations. I mean, there there are still plant there are plantations here that are gentrified, right? And I'm like, huh. <laughs> yeah. It's a really trippy experience, frankly. For yeah. Me. Whenever I think about those like things, like they turn into like event centers and like I hear about like weddings happening at those plantations mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I'm it's just too much for my my brain to process sometimes to think about the historical uh impact of such places and then the fact that they turn into like event centers or whatever is uh very bizarre to me. Yeah, there's a place here, a couple places where they've changed the name from you know, whatever the name is, uh, plantation to historical site. You're right. Yeah. So it literally is. And we know this is happening. The erasure or the attempt to, the attempt to erase so much of American history and that which is African-American history. But, you know, as I always say, well, here we are. So <laughs> you're going to, how do we get here again? Right. Yeah. Like it's kind of a absurd but again, I'm witnessing these places literally go through this renaming, this revisionist history of saying, oh, no, we're not going to call it plantation anymore. We're going to call it a historic site. Yeah. Are you working on any like shorter pieces uh, to kind of like prepare your your thinking and mindset for a book? Are you working on some like articles and stuff that might be out in, you know, like a, a wider audience uh, kind of publication before you kind of bring the book into existence? Well, that would be... <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? <laughs> That'd be great. I, right? I could, I would be excited to read about it. Um, so you know, along the way, I'm thinking about like, oh, I wonder if you and I could do a couple of podcast episodes about some major discoveries as you get smaller pieces put out into the world. Because then, by talking about it, what's really fun about conversations like this is it kind of 
you know, it helps us talk about ideas to bring them into a greater clarity. So if you ever want to be a, an if you ever need an experiment for uh, talking about stuff, you can let me know and we'll, uh, we'll do that. Oh, because yeah, it'll help me, you know, focus, right. And, and get the stuff down. And, and I really, I have actually pitched something, uh, October is Hoodoo Heritage Month. And so mm. I pre-pitch, it's a little early, but I pre-pitch this idea that of writing something around Hoodoo for Hoodoo Heritage Month, um, to just widen what people know about it, because it, it sort of flies under the radar or exists among these things that are called black magic or, you know, whatever that people don't really know anything about, but right off the bat, they just want to dismiss it as being, you know, whatever, <laughs> evil yeah. or, um, you know, devil worship or just dumb, right? Like, oh, that's just dumb. That doesn't really work. That doesn't really mean anything. And it's like, mm, what do you actually know about it again? Zero? I thought so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do want to talk about a little bit uh, about an article that you just put out. We'll talk a little bit about some some pop culture stuff. I love the way that sure. you're. I love the way that your 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 areas of interest are so broad. And but I'm so interested in music on this podcast as well. And I was very delighted to see that you write about music too. And you have a brand new article out called uh, Beyonce Gives Us a Black, Queer, and Spiritual Renaissance. And so I just want to start off by this. This came out in The Revealer. It came out December 7th, 2023. It is December 10th, 2023. So it is brand new right now. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your interest in Beyonce and why you're you know, pursuing some writing about what, she, what her work is like. How do I begin this? Uh, my interest in pop culture and music probably comes from, well, my family, one uncle in particular, but anyway, that's a whole other story. I also teach a course called Black Cultural Arts sometimes. And um, so I'm I'm very much attentive to uh, Black cultural arts, Harlem Renaissance, and just music in general. So of course, one cannot be interested in these things and not follow Beyonce, right? She sort of sets the, the standard. The other thing that's going on with her is that she is practicing in public, practicing her African spirituality in public. And so I see her because, you know, it's like, let those who have eyes to see, see, let those who have ears to hear, hear, right? And so she is practicing in public in a lot of ways. And in that article, I talk about you know, not just in Renaissance, but in Lemonade and Black as King, she's giving us a view into her own practices of, you know, venerating her ancestors and um, talking about Oshun, one of the Orisha um, in the Ifa Yoruba tradition. As she does that, she gets a lot of backlash from, you know, conservative Christians, conservative Black Christians in particular, who, you know, continually label African traditional spiritualities as demonic and illegitimate. It's a tension that I'm always um, aware of and, and pushing back against because this is our history as African diaspora people. And it cannot be that our very own culture and, and traditions are demonic. Hmm. It cannot be that that is the case, right? So I'm always pushing back about it. So in Beyonce's work and her, I mean, Beyonce doesn't really give very many interviews, right? So she doesn't speak about what these things mean to her, right? But you you hear it in her music, you see it in the imagery, you see it as you observe her and her family. 
And, so, and because I do, then it makes me want to write about it. It makes me want to include her in my in my lectures because I'm saying to other people, do you see what she's doing? And because she is a superstar of, of, of worldwide you know, caliber, she also is showing the world. She's also like dropping these little seeds, you know, which as teachers, that's what we do, right? Sometimes all you can really do is drop a seed and hope it grows. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you might not see it. You might never see the tree happen, but she is doing a thing beyond her own life as a pop star. Mm-hmm. It's more than just being, it's more than a song. It's more than a video. And you can appreciate her on so many levels. I mean, some people who say, well, she's not the greatest singer. I'm like, that does that really matter? She's an outstanding performer. Yeah. And she's got a vision too. There's so much more to it than just writing a song, recording it, and then performing it on stage. Like the imagery and the thought and the design that goes into it is like extremely deep. Extremely. And it's so you you can't you know knock her i mean if even if you don't particularly care for her music you could still look at she is like she has a work ethic <laughs> like no yeah. other she is she like you said her 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 visuals her her design like everything is and she's a virgo right so she's a virgo like michael jackson virgo right so things are going to be extraordinary and detailed and and so anyway, I watch her because I like to see that she is moving outside of her her lane, so to speak, to teach as well. Mm-hmm. And she's doing that with Renaissance. And so for my own students who are young people, 19 to 22, roughly, I mean, 18 to 22, roughly, I knew, I knew that they weren't connecting all the dots. I wanted to point out to them. So as I thought about writing this, I was thinking about my own students and I thought, well, I can do this on a bigger scale by, you know, working with a publication because a lot of people are going to miss these dots. A lot of people, even though Beyonce in, you know, Break My Soul, she is literally naming the artists who came before her mm-hmm. and her colleagues, right? She's literally making a breadcrumb trail so that you can understand, like she is acknowledging that she stands on the shoulders of others. And here's how this whole thing hangs together because we are standing, we're always standing on the shoulders of another artist or our ancestors. She's doing that. And which I didn't really have time in that article to do. There's a lot of stuff that got chopped. Let me just tell you, because it's a word limit, right? Part two. <laughs> she is doing, and now this, this is a little, I love the Harlem Renaissance era. And one scholar I absolutely love is Alan Locke. I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Locke. I'm not, no. He was known as the Dean of the Harlem Renaissance. So this great curator of um, those artists who we've come to know um, in that time period, Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, people say all the time, County Cullen, you know, there are certain names that are all, that always come up. But it was an enormous movement. And it the visionary was Alan Locke. Uh, first African-American to get to be a Rhodes Scholar also. Mm. And a brilliant, just an absolutely brilliant man, right? On the same scale or similar scale as W.B. Du Bois. And he tried to challenge Du Bois on many times. And I'm like, you're doing too much now, Alan. But anyway, <laughs> he in creating the idea of a renaissance, he thought, I will do for African-American culture what European what the Italian Renaissance did for Europeans. Mm. So you have an enormous vision. Beyonce's also doing that, 
but people don't get it, right? People yeah, and she's and she's not explicitly explaining what she's exactly. trying to do. Exactly. And so I feel like I can teach about Renaissance for forever because she is doing that thing. And I don't know if she is aware aware of Alan Locke either, but he had a vision of of I can actually push back against white supremacy by teaching the world about the grandeur of African art, which will lift up, he thought, right? He had hope <laughs> that which will lift or 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 break these these prejudices, right? I will introduce the whole world to the beauty of African people via African and African-American art. And we will therefore be done with racism. And so that was his huge vision. And so Beyonce is over here doing something similar by taking us through this tour around African-American dance and music and art. She's doing it. And I'm yeah. like, does anybody see this? Does anybody? Where are my Alan Locke scholars? Again, not something that a lot of people know, but I, I love and the examples that you we, that you weave throughout her depictions of African deities that like her critics get wrong when they analyze what she's doing. Your references to Sister Rosetta Tharp in there and her influences on Beyonce are are wonderful. Like there's so many pieces that you weave together in the article that I really hope that everybody will go and and find that piece because it's such a quick read and it's so interesting. And I think that it's something that uh, professors can easily use in like undergraduate courses to tie together a person that all students will have heard of. Mm -hmm. And it makes like the here and now relevant to to religious yes. studies courses to read stuff like this. Like that's why I love articles like this is that it makes it so vivid and in your face for for young people today to tie all these things together that artists are not just randomly putting together stuff like they have creative visions that are inspired by historical works that are inspired by history that are inspired by spirituality and that's what i loved about this piece the most well thank you and not because i teach them right and they you know tell me oh i don't know who that is i don't know who this is right and so i'm like okay well here's beyonce right you're aware yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also I wanted to do it because I am a house head, right? I've loved house music since, I don't know, my time in New York, right? In my, what year was that? 1990 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I've been in the, because Renaissance is about Black dance and house music and disco. And she reminds people that this is Black music. Well, I was in the club. I've been in the club since 1990, right? in these spaces in New York where the music was being made. I mean, you know, house began before 1990, but what, by the time I hit the dance floor in New York City in 1990, it was, you know, people were like, oh, well, you missed this, you missed that. <laughs> like, okay, well, you know, I'm just now old enough, okay? Yeah, you can't help when you're born, okay? You can't be a gatekeeper for, for cool stuff like that whenever somebody like literally was not old enough to be there, you know? Right, I wish I could have gone to Studio 54, but I was maybe five, so I... Yeah. <laughs> so it allowed me to talk about house music, which I also love, and I'm very much a purist about deep house, deep soulful house, as opposed to what people may uh, more commonly think of as... EDM and rave music. And I'm like, nah, nah, see, those are what I call the bastardized versions of real house music. And it, it, this thing that happens to black music where it gets um, literally whitewashed, like, no, we're not doing that. 
We're not doing that. This began in Chicago and New York among Black people, Latino people, um, who were, a lot of them were were queer. A lot of them were were excommunicated from, from family, from church, and they created new spaces and they had all kind of creativity to make music and fashion and you know, and now here we are in 2023 and people think it's all cool and, and stylish and there's TV shows and people are so homophobic, but they love to participate in the sort of pop cultural fashion bits of it. And I'm like, no, this is this is this runs deep. People have bled for this. People yeah. have you know suffered for this. And so what we're not going to do is steal their glory now and act like, oh, I found it on TikTok. Mm. Well, you might have, but let me tell you about Larry LeVan and the godfather of house, Freddie Knuckles. Dr. Morton, I would be remiss if we didn't chat about another one of your projects for at least a few minutes to kind of put it into the world of listeners' awareness that you have another book called, I can see it on the shelf behind you, 40-something, 10 Radical Lessons for Women on How to Live and Love Without Losing Themselves. Tell listeners a little bit about this book and your interest in uh, in this topic, because um, I get the impression from like looking at your some of your work the last couple of weeks that this is a really meaningful project for you. And I just wanted to ha- give you a chance to talk about what what it means to you to do this project in this book. Well, thanks. Yes, on my bookshelf. Well, as I said, I, I'm I'm also a coach. I'm also you know I wear a lot of different hats. I'm not, I guess, the traditional academic, right? And so I wrote this book because I was going through some stuff in my in when I was 40 something. It's about women being a support to women who are looking for something. I mean, as we all get into that decade, I think that it's a time of reflection. You're you you're in a new place of maturity, of adult maturity. And so you're looking at the world at the, and at your life like what am I what am I doing and what's really meaningful to me? And am I on the right track? I might not be on the right track. I thought all these things were meaningful, but come to find out, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what is meaningful? Actually, I don't know. And so people in their 40s are going on this trip of like, now what? And I'm Gen X, right? So a lot of, you know, people who are just turning 40 are millennials, right? But I'm Gen X. I always say we're uh, too old to be young, too young to be old. (laughs) And so in this book, I'm really sharing some of my own experiences of of navigating through that space, through the journey of coming to find yourself again and thinking about the ways in which we often lose ourselves in career, in relationships, um, and even relationships like being a parent or caregiving for parents or something you can lose who you really are who you meant to be and so either you'll keep coasting and be resentful when you're 65 or you'll have a sort of a wake up and say wait a minute I am not old I still have time to do something else if I start paying attention to what else I want to do and so I coach uh, specifically black women in midlife who are interested in now what I I loved that idea too and um I just turned 40, so the uh, so many of the ideas that you that you just said really resonate with kind of where I am in my own life and thinking about, you know, 67-year-old Greg, 81-year-old Greg. I want that Greg down the line to be mm-hmm. proud of this Greg at 40 who 
maybe picked up on some of those things that may have led to those resentments and disappointments Mm -hmm. and sought to address them now instead of uh, 67 year old Greg having to like wake up every day and like live with 40 year old Greg's inability to reflect. (laughs) So I love those ideas Mm -hmm. and those encouragements. And I hope everybody will um, check out that book, 40 something, 10 radical lessons for women on how to live and love without losing themselves. What are some of your goals in public scholarship? I know that you're uh, working with the Sacred Rights Organization um, lately on uh, on some trainings for public scholarship. Kind of, what are you getting out of that, and what are some of your goals in the in that area? Well, I'm getting a lot. You know, as academics, we're trained in a certain kind of a way, right? To be very wordy, and you know, we speak dissertation ease still. Like we 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 speak as if we've got to you know prove something to colleagues or whatever. So, Sacred Rights really helps us own our own um, uh, expertise. Mm-hmm. Right? And I love that they say, you're already smart, you may as well be smart in public. And it really gives us permission to own the fact that we we are trained scholars, right? And in a certain play, point in our, in our culture today, people like to think that their opinion is equated with years and years of, of research and, and study. And it's important, therefore, that scholars learn really how to speak to people who don't have as much education in very practical ways. And so that's what I'm getting from sacred rights is like, you know, here's how to be more concise. Here's, you know, here are the places where you can, you know, make an impact because people do need to hear from us. But you can't go in there speaking like you're talking to another group group of 10 people with a PhD. What are uh, a couple of, you know, writing goals that you have for yourself or not, not even just writing, but engaging projects of some kind of medium, whether it's writing or video or anything like that. What are you working on in the next couple of years? Oh my gosh. couple of years. Well, I am writing, I am working on that hoodoo book and, or I guess shorter pieces. I have fiction that I want to write. I'm awesome. This idea called, oh, should I say what it's called? It's totally Uh, up to you. (laughs) The working title is something like the artifact. And it's like this spiritual journey that these people go on um, to find some artifact, right? But of course, the real journey is the journey within and their own spiritual awakening that they, they will each encounter. That's been on my list forever and ever. I've started it. You know, it's just one of those back burner projects that really should be front and center. So it's always a thing of like, how do I balance all of these things? Plus the coaching that I do, I have a summit coming up in February, Black Women Success Summit. So again, helping 40, 50 something year old women figure out what's next and doing it in a virtual summit so that people can participate everywhere. Um, So those are the things that keep me busy in addition to teaching part time, right? Uh, it's a, it's a constant like spinning of plates. Yeah, totally. I I absolutely get it. Where can people find you and follow along with your work if they want to get in touch, know more, et cetera? Well, I'm on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, at Dr. Darnese, I think everywhere. And I have a website, drdarnese.com. So for that's mostly for people who are interested in, in coaching and that sort of African, African-American spiritualities, drdarnese.com would probably be the best place. The books are available on Amazon. Other than that, yeah, find me on the socials, of course, and YouTube, I almost forgot. And I have a couple of YouTube channels also. Nice. Well, Dr. Darnese Martin, what a 
lovely way to spend a Sunday morning. I love that we got to hang out on a weekend with a nice slow morning at both of our homes. It's lovely to hang out and chat about your very wide range of experiences throughout your career. And I'm really grateful for your stories, for your energy, for your time today. Thank you so much for being here and uh, hanging out with me. Absolutely. It's been fun. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you.